Gas prices are through the roof. The national average for a gallon of gas is now $3.73, according to data collected by AAA. For the first time ever, average gas prices have surpassed $5 per gallon in multiple American cities. San Francisco, Los Angeles, Napa, San Luis Obispo, a couple others as well. Oil spiked to more than $116 per barrel earlier this week, the highest it's been since 2008. And that number is only poised to go up as the war in Ukraine, a war largely of Joe Biden's own making, rages on and disrupts global oil supplies. So what does the White House plan to do to give Americans relief at the pump? Why buy oil from Russia, of course. During that, those years where it would you know, take to bring down prices, as you're saying, we should just continue to buy Russian oil. Well, again, Jackie, I think you're familiar with a number of steps we've taken, a historic release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Well, we can, well, let me finish. What we can do over time and what this is all a reminder of in the president's view is our need to reduce our reliance on oil. The Europeans need to do that. We need to do that. If we do more to invest in clean energy, more to invest in other sources of of energy, that's exactly what we can do to prevent this uh, from happening in the future. We welcome any Republicans from joining us in that effort. Go ahead. As long as we're buying Russian oil, though? Aren't we financing the war? Well, Jackie, again, uh, it's only about 10% of what we're importing. Uh, I've not made any announcement about any decision on that front, but our objective here and our focus is making sure that any step we take maximizes the impact on President Putin and minimizes it on the American people. So just to recap, Russia invaded Ukraine because Joe Biden gave the go-ahead to Putin's Nord Stream 2 oil pipeline which gives Russia direct access to the European oil market and took away all of Ukraine's leverage. Conservatives knew this would happen and have been talking about it for years. For years, Ted Cruz warned that this would happen, and he successfully got sanctions placed on the pipeline under the Trump administration, during which time Putin did not invade Ukraine, until Biden took office and removed the sanctions, at which point Putin did invade Ukraine. Even the liberal New York magazine admits that this is true, that Biden's green light of the pipeline led to the invasion, which, by the way, Biden himself literally encouraged when he assured Russia that America wouldn't retaliate against any invasion if it were only a quote-unquote minor incursion. So Russia invaded Ukraine because Biden gave the go-ahead on the Russia oil pipeline. At the same time, Biden shut down American oil pipelines in the name of fighting climate change. Apparently, Russian oil doesn't harm the climate. Russian oil doesn't anger the sun gods like American oil does. Now, Americans are still consuming the same amount of oil. So the only practical effect of crippling the American energy industry is that now we need to import the oil from overseas, including from our enemies, including from Russia, which relies on oil exports to fund the war in Ukraine, which means that Joe Biden's stupid energy policy not only started the war in Ukraine, but is currently funding it with your taxpayer dollars. Dollars that you now need to stretch because his stupid energy policy is also emptying out your wallet at the pump. I'm Michael Knowles, this is The Michael Knowles Show. My favorite comment yesterday is from Louis Shemelton, who says, I'm starting to feel bad for Michael. He keeps having to say, I told you so, It has to be taking a toll on him. It is. Look at me. I'm exhausted. 
I'm, I'm, I'm worn out from being this right. I am, as Donald Trump said, sick and tired of winning. I'm winning on the predictions. We're not winning politically. We're losing politically because of bad leadership in Washington. We got, you got to do whatever you can in these difficult days to protect yourself, notably to protect your identity, which is why you got to check out LifeLock. Head to lifelock.com slash Knowles. Tax time is always stressful, but this stress can magnify if an identity thief steals your info, files a bogus return, and pockets your refund. The IRS recommends electronic filing and using their pin tool for extra security. Other safety tips include looking out for phishing scams, checking your financial accounts regularly for unusual activity, and setting up two-factor authentication. Every day, we put our information at risk on the internet, not just during tax season, every single day. In an instant, a cyber criminal could steal what's yours, sometimes even harm your finances, your credit, your reputation. Good thing there's LifeLock. LifeLock helps detect a wide range of identity threats, like your social security number for sale on the dark web. I love LifeLock. It makes me feel much more secure. If they find out your info has potentially been compromised, they've got a specialist on board, ready to go if you become a victim. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. You can help protect what's yours with LifeLock by Norton. Join now, save up to 25% off your first year, lifelock.com slash Knowles. That is lifelock.com slash K-N-W-L-E-S for 25% off. That's their answer. Their answer to the American oil and gas problem is buy it from overseas, including from our enemies. We didn't, we didn't need to buy it from overseas. We didn't need to buy it from our enemies. We could just make it ourselves. That's what we were doing. Things were looking great on the energy front during the Trump years. And then the libs voluntarily shut down American energy. And they did so because they said that if we continue to produce energy and really to consume energy, then we're going to harm the environment and get the sun gods really angry at us. And they're going to shower us with all sorts of plagues to punish us for the sin of driving automobiles. So they, they attack the American energy industry. They go after coal, they go after gas, they go after oil. But the thing is, we still need all that stuff. So nothing changed in terms of what we're emitting and, and polluting and driving and moving around. We just, instead of making it ourselves, we now import it at a premium from overseas, including from our enemies who are using that money then to fund wars that oppose American interests. And they're not just talking about, they're not just talking about buying oil from Russia, which we're doing. I love Jen Psaki. She says, no, 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 don't worry. It's only 10% of our oil imports. 10% of the American oil imports are coming from this country that relies almost exclusively on energy to fund its imperial wars that we're now also kind of fighting in. Are you kidding me? Oh, good. It's okay. I was worried it was 15%. Okay. It's 10% though. That's fine. They're not just talking about Russia. They're now talking about buying oil from Iran. There was a, uh, some left-winger blue check named Ryan Cooper tweeted out, quote, Iran has 103 million barrels of oil loaded up on tankers and ready to go. CC Joe Biden. As if to say, look, look, we don't do business with state sponsors of terror and and people who chant death to America, yeah, well, but they got the oil ready to go. And Iranian oil doesn't cause climate change. It's, it's got the magic of the Russian oil. They've got magic genies over there in the Middle East. And the, the magic Iranian oil, that doesn't have carbon emissions. Only the American domestically produced oil does. Okay, it's not just Ryan. It's not just these random leftist blue checks who are trying to buy oil from our enemies. 
And Pete Buttigieg, our, our transportation secretary, I think he's back from paternity leave. His C-section scar has healed up very nicely. And the energy secretary, or the transportation secretary rather, is, is back at work. He, he goes on to MSNBC. He's asked about what we're going to do to give relief to people at the pump. And he says, look, all options are on the table, but we don't want to be too hasty. We don't want any permanent solutions. Could the president possibly consider authorizing the Keystone Pipeline, uh, working something out with Iran? I mean, uh, look, the, the president has said that all options are on the table, but we also need to make sure that uh, uh, we're not galloping after permanent solutions to immediate short-term problems where uh, more strategic and tactical actions in the short term can make a difference. So he says, yeah, maybe we'll, okay, Keystone, except the White House already shut that down. They said, no, Keystone pipeline, that's going to take too long to build in America. So that's off the table. And he says, what about buying from Iran? Yeah, that's on the table. Okay, I'm not surprised when Democrats want to buy oil from our enemies. What does surprise me, though, is that second part, the philosophical part that Buttigieg put in there. Because Buttigieg, say what you will about him, he's a fairly intelligent guy. He's got all the credentials, checks all the boxes, name, brand, name, brand name school rather, worked at McKinsey, very polished, right? He's got, he, he knows all the hip, cool lingo that all the elites are using. But then he says, we don't, we don't want to find a permanent solution to short-term problems. Uh, why not? So first of all, the energy issue is not a short-term problem. It is exacerbated at different periods. Sometimes it's a lot worse than at other times. Right now with war breaking out in Europe, yeah, it's pretty bad. But it's a, it's a problem generally. We don't want to be reliant on our enemies for our energy consumption. Why wouldn't we want a permanent solution? I want a permanent solution. Give me, oh, here's a permanent solution. Produce American energy. And what the Buttigieg's of the world and the Jen Psaki's of the world and the Joe Biden's of the world, what they say is, well, that's what we're going to do but we're not going to do it from coal and we're not going to do it from oil and we're not going to do it from gas and we're not going to do it from nuclear for some reason. So we're going to do it from windmills. We're going to do it from solar. We're going to do it from, from the hopes and dreams of unicorns prancing around the plains. That's where we're going to get our energy from. We're going to get American energy for the world's superpower for now, for a country of 330 million people with effectively a global empire for now, we're going to get energy from windmills. But you're not. You're not. That's never going to happen. The so-called green sources of energy are extraordinarily inefficient. They're extraordinarily ineffective. They're also not great for the environment, by the way. That's the, that's the secret. I forget the comedian's name. There was a comedian many years ago who made the point. He said, okay, you're all switching from gas cars to, to electric cars. Uh, do you know where electricity comes from? It doesn't come from magic, okay? <laughs> it comes from dirty, filthy energy sources. And even, even so, the production of the batteries is very bad for the environment. Even so, it's not, that's not an answer. So really what the answer is, is we don't have an answer. The answer is, uh, shrug your shoulders. We don't want a permanent solution. We're just going to keep buying oil from our enemies. We're just going to move from crisis to crisis, to crisis. Then we're going to create some more crises. And then we're going to respond to the crises that in many cases we created. And we're just going to keep doing that and, and keep everyone on the edge of their seats at our beck and call in perpetuity. That is the Democrat liberal way 
of governing. Not a good way to govern. This is, these, are, these people who are working for the administration, they are not the best, they are not the brightest, they are not very competent. When you want bright, competent people for your organization, I strongly recommend you check out ZipRecruiter. Right now, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Knowles. I think it's great to learn new skills. I'm always trying to keep my mind active, become more useful. I'd love to learn how to save more money. I'd love to learn how to own a plant without killing it. I haven't perfected that yet, but I will try. I love learning new things, just like ZipRecruiter. Their AI is always learning. So if you're hiring, their AI gets better and faster at finding the right candidates for all of your roles. Right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Knowles. ZipRecruiter uses this powerful matching technology to find and match the right candidates with your job. It's not just spaghetti at the wall. It proactively presents these candidates to you. Then you find your favorites. ZipRecruiter will go invite them to apply. Makes the whole process much faster, smoother, saves you time, saves you money. Most important investment is your personnel. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Knowles. That is ZipRecruiter.com slash K-N-O-W-L-E-S. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. One of the many unique aspects of this war in Ukraine, as I have noted and gotten in trouble for noting, this is the first major war to break out in my lifetime between civilized nations. That's why it's a little different than the various minor conflicts and wars of empire that we've seen around the world in the last quarter century. One of the strange things about this war is military maneuvers matter. And I think we forget that. Because the wars have been, for instance, the war in Afghanistan, the United States, the world superpower, goes into a backwater of largely illiterate goat herders. I really don't mean to be offensive, but we're talking about asymmetries of power here that are basically unimaginable. And we just dominate it. We conquer Afghanistan in five seconds. And then politically speaking, we don't know what to do with it. We don't know whether to hold it. We don't know whether to make it a imperial territory. We don't know whether to try to prop up some fake Afghan army and, and, and government that's really just a client state for the United States. And then we've got a lot of domestic political pressure to pull out. And then we just voluntarily give up the thing. It's not as though they were the, the Afghanis, the Taliban, were actually going to take it back until we signaled that we're going to pull out. And then they, they reconquered it in, in two seconds. We forget that... The, the physical matters, battles, places, military tactics. Here you've got a Ukrainian army, which is fighting back reportedly quite strongly. And you've got the Russian army, which is not nearly as strong as a lot of the world expected it to be. And they're in a little bit of a stalemate right now. I, th- I think that Vladimir Putin probably thought this entire military operation would be over by now, would have been over within 72 hours. And it really hasn't been. The Russian army seems to be stuck a little bit. And they're calibrating some of what they're doing to not incur too much international condemnation. Now that they've got the condemnation, they seem to be ratcheting up the attacks. And it's really, it's a bloody mess. But we here, we here in the West, I think we, these days we don't think that space and time really matter all that much. We think our bodies don't really matter. That's what transgenderism is. We think the community doesn't really matter. That's why we're all working from home on our laptops if you're part of the laptop set. Right, that, that's why the ruling elite said, oh, who cares about the pandemic? You can all just co- telecommute to your consulting job on your laptop. Right? Oh, it do, it's not a big deal. No one needs to be in person. That's, we're all, we're all going to go live in the metaverse. Right? We forget. No, actually, borders matter. Land matters. People, peoples matter. Okay, this is something our ruling elites, they, they think that 
America's just an idea. The West, it's just kind of an idea, right? It's not a people. It's not institutions. It's not real rituals and customs. and be, It's all just kind of floating in the ether, man, except it's not. It's not. And Americans have woken up against that. And this is a, a, a large backlash against the Davos globalist, liberal, cosmopolitan set. We, f- we forget that. Now, one update from, from Ukraine that is pretty astonishing. It's from Elon Musk. Elon Musk is apparently single-handedly providing internet to parts of Ukraine right now. Elon Musk has this Starlink system. He's got lots of satellites up in the sky. The satellites are able to provide internet almost anywhere. And so he's got Starlink set up to provide internet to Ukraine. So after the Russians went out and hit some Ukrainian telecoms, uh, Starlink is just providing that. And uh, Musk sent out a, a tactical warning He said, important warning, Starlink is the only non-Russian communication system still working in some parts of Ukraine, so probability of being targeted is high. Please use it with caution. Turn on Starlink only when needed and place the antenna away, as far away from people as possible. Place light camouflage over the antenna to avoid visual detection. Because that, it's not everything just turns on with a flip of a switch in in the smart world. Tactics matter. Placement matters. Geography matters. That's what's playing out, and it's, it's shocking the world. We are, we are seeing the collapse of the post-Cold War order of relative peace and stability, at least in the civilized world, at least in the Western world. It's all set. It's all good. No more big wars. We're just going to have wars of empire. Well, not so much. And if, if the Bidens of the world are in charge, if the liberal establishment that led us to this point is in charge, we are headed in a very different direction. And we are, we are headed for much more conflict much more strife, a, a place in which traditional nationhood and tactics and militaries are going to matter. Some good news from overseas, better news from overseas, is France is suspending its COVID passport. France has just said, Emmanuel Macron, who is the liberal technocrat who runs France, he said that now, even though the, the passport was only introduced in, in uh, January, uh, the pass system uh, is, is now going to be done away with. Uh, the, the vaccine pass system dates back a little earlier. It had been floated. It actually first went into effect on the last day that I was in Paris last year. So the implementation kind of got stalled and muddled and paused and rolled out. But so when it first went into effect, I actually didn't know if I was going to be able to go to France because you were going to have to show your, show your medical papers, basically, anywhere you went. And then they delayed it, delayed it, they delayed it. The, f- the first day it went into effect was as I was flying back out of France. And a, a lot of people said, why do you want to go to France? Those crazy French, they just, they're so COVID nuts. They're all afraid. They're neurotic about it. They're, that's not true. The French government was neurotic about it. The French people were not. The French people were chiller about COVID than most American people I talked to, certainly in the big cities. The Parisians, they didn't care. I'd, I'd get into a cab. I'd say, do I have to wear the stupid mask? They'd say, well, no, what's why I have the vaccine. I am vaccine. I don't care. You do whatever you want. I do not need. <laughs> I Pepe Le Pew was, were my drivers actually in, in Paris. Uh, no, the, the French people were pretty normal about it. There was a big gulf, just like we see here in America. Frankly, perhaps even more so. There's a big gulf between the French people and the government. And the government's finally waking up to this and they're saying, okay, no more show me your papers when you try to go get a croissant in Paris. You're, you're seeing this spread throughout the West. 
the, the West's ruling class, by which I don't just mean whatever party happens to be in power, but I mean the whole edifice. You know, we talk about the deep state, the transnational, international institutions. They're losing their grip on the common sense, and they're losing their grip on power. And a lot of what you're seeing happening right now in Eastern Europe is a reflection of that. There's a huge chasm between the elites and the people, specifically over this issue that I was just talking about, this issue of nations being real places with real borders and borders really do matter. And people fight over borders, by the way, and there are wars over borders and there are wars between peoples who view themselves distinctly with different language and different customs. And not everyone is just replaceable. Okay. Not everyone. It's not just that you can swap out the people of one country and replace them with a totally different people. And it's going to be the same country. Okay. But that is what elites in our country have been experimenting with for a long time. Elites in the Democrat and Republican parties. This is the effect of mass migration. Mass migration. Over the past what, 60 years or so, we've seen what, 60 million some odd people move from other parts of the world into the United States. This is the largest, this is the largest mass migration of people ever, ever in the history of the world. Last year, it was 3 million immigrants came into America. 2 million illegal immigrants came into America last year, just last year, just in the first year under Joe Biden. Sometimes the libs, they, they get upset. They talk about the great replacement conspiracy theory, which is a heinous white supremacist, neo-Nazi conspiracy theory. Well, what's the theory? The theory is that liberals are using mass migration as a political tool to alter the voting demographics in a country in their favor. That's not only is that obviously true, but the liberals have been bragging about this for 10 years. So they're doing it. They're saying they're doing it. And then they're telling you that you're not allowed to say that they already told you that they're doing it. And it's not just Democrats. I've got here a letter to Nancy Pelosi, to Schumer, to McCarthy, the Republican leader, to Mitch McConnell, calling for more migration. The Alliance for a New Immigration Consensus. And who signs it? You got a bunch of lib groups that sign it, sure. But then you've, you've got the George W. Bush Institute. You've got Coke-backed enterprise. The Cokes were, the Koch brothers were a big force behind the Tea Party. They're usually considered more on the right, but they, they do support mass migration. You've got the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, used to be sort of right-wing. Now it's really more considered firmly on, on the left. Lots of different groups signing on to this. According to the last Gallup poll, only 9% of Americans say they want more immigration. 9% of Americans. According to that poll, 35% said they want less immigration total. There have been other polls. There was a Harvard-Harris poll now four or five years ago. Showed that the, when you actually get down into numbers on immigration, the vast majority of Americans want to drastically reduce all immigration, legal and illegal. And yet the elites from both parties want to increase it. That is wrong. It's wrong to do that, first of all. It's wrong to flood a country with foreigners against the will of the people, especially in a self-government where the people are supposed to rule and where citizens can vote and those votes determine who rules. That's wrong. That's wrong to do. And it's completely tone deaf. I think that Kevin McCarthy has finally realized this is no good. He said that the Chamber of Commerce is no longer a Republican group. It's firmly on the left. We need to get that right ourselves. If the people who are backing this sort of thing, the elites, they're not on our team. 
Okay, the people are on our team. If we're going to have a team at all, it's got to be a team with the people. He who pays the piper calls the tune, or should. This is a general rule of politics. This is why we get so worried when we find out that corrupt Ukrainian energy companies are paying off members of the Biden family or the Clinton Foundation. We get a little worried because that implies a certain degree of corruption. When people, when, when individual donors make huge donations, then they start making demands of politicians. That's why we have laws about donations in politics. And when people who want mass migration are the ones paying for all the conservative activities, what's going to happen? Those conservatives are going to go soft on immigration. That's what happened for decades and decades. Now, there's, there's only one area where <laughs> he who pays the piper has not been able to call the tune, and that would be in immigration, or in education, rather. We pay for the education system. We, the taxpayers, pay for the education system. It is administered by the state in most cases. And yet, even when it's conservatives who are voting and paying and administrating, administering, for some reason the left dominates these schools. And we've got to stop that. There's great news that came out of Wyoming. A, uh, a, the Wyoming Senate just passed an amendment to the state budget that would defund the University of Wyoming's gender and women's studies program. Uh, this amendment will be sent to the House for approval. Republican State Senator Sherry Steinmetz was responsible for this. Good on you, Sherry. This is awesome. The Wyoming Republicans should totally get behind this. Is this cancel culture? Sort of. But as we've said in the past, cancel culture is a wonderful thing when it's applied to cancel that which is false and ugly and evil. We want all societies canceled. All, all societies have taboos and things that are, and standards and things that are off limits. That's inevitable. That's always going to be the case. The question is, what is off limits? What's bad? What do we ostracize? What do we censor? What do we cancel? And conservatives have adopted this kind of neutral sounding language of, oh, I'm for all ideas. I'm for don't censor anything. But it's BS. It's not true. It's, it, that is language from the left in the 1960s, which they, they too knew was instrumental and not real. The minute they got power, they implemented their own standards. We would too. That's just the nature of politics, okay? And so when you look at a, a department like women's and gender studies, really all of the critical studies departments, you realize this is not about a, a classical liberal education. This is about radical political indoctrination. It's really bad. We shouldn't be paying for it. It, should, it has no place at a university. And you got to cancel it and you got to kick it out. Speaking of canceling teachers, there's a fourth grade teacher in Indiana who was just exposed for owning a satanic temple. Fourth grade teacher teaching little nine-year-olds is a practicing high-level Satanist. Now, look, I'm tolerant. You know, I'm a tolerant guy and everything, and we, we should be tolerant. But I think that's a little too far. I think the Satanists teaching your nine-year-old, that's too much. But Michael, some people would say, what about freedom of religion? Uh, yeah, that's not what freedom of religion means. Okay. <laughs> freedom. <laughs> first of all, freedom of religion, as we understand it, is really refers to the First Amendment, which says that the federal government will not have an established church. Okay. That's a very different thing from saying Satanists can teach your nine-year-olds. Right. It, and frankly, one of the reasons that there was no state established church at the federal level is because there were established churches at the state level for decades after the constitution was ratified. I don't think the founding fathers if they found out that their words and documents were being used to defend a Satanist teaching nine, nine-year-olds, I don't think that they would applaud this as some wonderful blessing of liberty. 
you know, hold a parade for this woman. Uh, probably they wouldn't even argue about it. They would be too busy uh, gathering kindling to burn her at the stake, okay? This is not the sort of thing that is acceptable. And the school's defending her. They say, we do not ask our teachers or any employees about their religious beliefs. Well, yeah, but if you're worshiping the dark lord of the underworld, uh, that's a little bit too far, okay? Religious liberty, too, has limits. I'll give, I'll give you an example of this. If, if a teacher, at a, at a, certainly at an elementary school, but even at a college, were found to be a Nazi, that teacher would be fired in two seconds, and everyone would support it. Right, well, what does it mean to be a Nazi? It means you hold certain political views, I guess, but those views are a little deeper than just politics, right? They're kind of cultural. They're actually kind of religious. They're views about the nature of man and the nature of races and the, and the, the human dignity and worth of different races. Nazism, when you really follow it down to its bottom, has a, a deeply occult element to it. All of the leading Nazis were, were practicing some, to some degree paganism or occult rituals. It's religious because you, at bottom, all politics is religious, okay? We have, in the last few decades, gotten to a place where we will tolerate Satanists teaching our kids. I won't. I won't do that. I will not send my kid to be instructed by Satanists. I will not send my taxpayer dollars, if I have any say of it, to, to have Satanists teach our kids. This is a wonderful use of the political power of parents to shape their students' education. Uh, before we go, I do want to get to uh, Katanji Brown Jackson. I've been meaning to get to her all week, and we just haven't had time to do it. She is the Biden Supreme Court uh, nominee. Uh, 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 the reason I want to call her to your attention, we'll go more into her next week, uh, but she's a formidable Supreme Court nominee. Okay. I don't think we can just, people were going to write her off as a diversity hire because Joe Biden said she was going to be a diversity hire, but this is a, this is a bright woman and she's very, very clever. She's a double Harvard person, Harvard undergraduate and Harvard law school. Not that that's necessarily a recommendation these days, but at least it used to be. Uh, she was a judge on the U.S. District Court for uh, D.C. and the Court of Appeals for D.C. She was put on the Court of Appeals for D.C. one year ago, less than one year ago. Uh, she's big, big lib. She's had her decisions reversed, even by left-wing courts. Uh, but she, uh, she's very clever. Uh, she had an exchange with Senator Ted Cruz. Again, maybe we'll be able to get to the clips of this uh, next week. Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. We'll see how, we'll see how well you behave over the weekend. Maybe we'll try to get to that. But what she, what she said here, she was asked, do you believe there's a living constitution like all the liberals do? Or do you believe the constitution means what it says it means? And she was able to evade the question. She told Senator Cruz, well, you know, look, I haven't had to make any decisions in that regard in the lower courts. And then she said, well, I believe the constitution is an enduring document. She, she did very well. She did very well. She's a very convincing candidate. I doubt that Republicans are going to be able to shoot down her nomination. On the one hand, I guess you want intelligent people on the Supreme Court. On the other hand, I don't know that I want uh, a very intelligent, liberal, radical judge on the Supreme Court. In many ways, a dumber liberal judge would be better because it would easy, be easier to undermine uh, that sort of person's jurisprudence. It's not just the intelligence we're after. It's where you want it aimed. What, it kind of gets back to what we were talking about. You want that intelligence used for good things that are edifying, that will build up the country. Some, some of the greatest saints in history could have been the worst sinners in the world, such as the, the power that they've got. The question is, how, are you going to use that power for good or for evil? 
Mark your calendars, folks. March 10th, the premiere of our latest film, The Hyperions, is out. It's not woke. doesn't have any underlying pedantic political message. It's just an excellent film. When it comes to entertainment, that's really what we're after. Check out the trailer. Good day, Hyperion Club members. We've come for one thing. Our Titan badges. This Titan badge can grant an individual superhuman power. Perhaps it's time for someone else to take on the responsibility. On my way. She's trying to destroy me. We will be streaming the film once and for all on March 10th for everybody on YouTube. But then that's it for everybody. That's the last time we're going to premiere that movie on YouTube. So be sure, if you want to watch the movie after that, that you head on over to Daily Wire's YouTube channel, and then head on over to dailywire.com slash subscribe so you can become a member, watch that movie, our whole growing cache of content that we've got to offer. Also, we've got a great book coming out with Jonathan Isaac, terrific patriotic basketball player, really nice guy. Uh, go uh, pre-order that today. It's, it's on his political stances, his career, his, his religious beliefs. The book is Why I Stand. It's available for pre-order at Amazon. Reserve your copy today. We will be right back with the mailbag. Welcome back, my absolute favorite time of the week when I get to hear from you, answer your pressing questions in the mailbag. First question up is from Miguel. Hola, Miguel. He says, hey, Michael. So I just got into a small debate recently about abortion, and my opponent brought up a very good point that has caused me to lose the debate overall. Okay? It's very complicated and with a lot of nuance and such, but simply put, with the non-religious view of the world and humanity, there is no way to justify intrinsic human value or even objective morality. I tried going through all the small nuances like asking when a human has value or where morality stems from, and he had an answer for everything. He said that the way he sees it, the fetus becomes valuable enough not to kill once it has received sentience. And in the case of someone not being sentient, uh, they had previous sentience, so they do still have value. How do I, a Christian, debunk this view in a secular sense? It's hard to debunk it because it's so stupid and incoherent. It doesn't, the first part that he said is, is coherent. And so I guess that's where I would begin. He said that or you said maybe summarizing his point, that uh, in a, if the world were such that God did not exist and morality does not exist and you know, if reality were completely different than it is, then you couldn't say that human beings have value and so you couldn't argue against abortion. That's true. So in that world, in that bizarro world that is not real, not the world that we actually live in, that's true. You couldn't argue against abortion. You also couldn't argue against murder laws. And you also couldn't argue, or argue for murder laws, rather. And you couldn't argue for laws against armed robbery. And you couldn't order at all, argue at all, actually, because the, the world would not have logic. And so it would not have meaning or truth, and you couldn't convey anything to anyone else. Uh, so that would, that would be difficult to make any sort of argument at all. Now, your friend has said that he believes that human life gets value when it becomes sentient. And he believes this because, uh, why does he believe that? What's his, <laughs> he would have to make an argument for that. 
You're saying that he made the argument that, uh, you know, you shouldn't kill people in a coma, for instance, because they were previously sentient, but, but now they're not. But because they were previously sentient, you shouldn't kill them because why? Because he says so. Well, okay, but you, you need to make an argument as to why human life becomes valuable with sentience. That is not self-evident. He's just stating that as a premise and then coming to a conclusion from his own premise. But speaking of premises, uh, sometimes people ask me this. They say, Michael, I want you, can you make a totally secular atheist argument for pro-life or for anything else? And I say, well, uh, no. Why, or even if I could, I mean, you can't really make an atheist argument for anything because, because the, the very fact that our language has meaning implies that God exists. But uh, moreover, why would I? Well, why would I, why would I make an argument from the basis of my opponent's wrong premises? That would seem to be a very foolish thing to do. But we, we say this on the show all the time. All human conflict ultimately is theological, so you are going to have to get down to first principles. And if his first principle is that God doesn't exist and human life doesn't have any value, and I'm just going to say completely arbitrarily that life, that I value life that is sentient, but not, but, and then some life that's not sentient when I feel like it, well, okay, then I guess that's that. But the premise is off. We do, life does have value. Human beings do have value. There is a moral order. The fact that we have civil laws and that we recognize that it's wrong to commit murder and wrong to commit armed robbery and wrong to kill babies when we're being honest with ourselves, the reason we recognize that is because we, there is objective truth and a moral order. We have faculties of reason and moral conscience that allow us to make some sense of that. And we are valuable creatures made in the image of God. That's why. And so if you say, well, Make an argument, but without any of those beliefs, well, I, I'm sorry, you're at, you know, if, if my aunt had cojones, she'd be my uncle, you know. If wishes were horses, beggars would ride. If I had some ham, I'd have a ham sandwich. If I had some bread, you get the picture. If I had ifs, if, ifs, ifs and buts were candy and us, we'd all have a Merry Christmas. But the premises are wrong. And so you should begin with correct premises, always. From Alex, dear Michael, I'm a freshman in high school and I love the show. Thank you. I'm having some love troubles and I'm looking for advice. I went to a school dance recently and was flirting with a girl who I like. We were already friends. After the fact, I found out that she already has a boyfriend, but she was still being perfectly amicable toward me. So I wanted to ask, where do I go from here? I don't know how to proceed because I really like this girl, but want to respect her relationship. Thanks for the advice. Just because there is a goalie, my friend, does not mean you cannot score. Very important advice. Now look, if you were in your 20s or 30s, if this girl that you had a crush on were married, I would say back off. Respect the marriage. You're 14 years old. This girl, presumably, is a teenager as well. She's got a little teenage fling, and she's obviously thinks you're attractive. Make it happen, Buster. When, you know, sweet little Elise and I were high school sweethearts. We've known each other since we were 10 or 11 years old. And when I was in, I think we were in eighth grade, sweet little Lisa had a crush on me, but I had a, a different girlfriend. It was, she was very upset. When we were in ninth grade, I had a big crush on her. She had another boyfriend. I was very jealous. I was very angry. I thought, oh no, this is awful. This is but you know, you just kind of, you stick around. You maybe put on your, to quote the former Italian prime minister, Silvio Berlusconi, you put on that, the playboy charm, you know, you, you chatter up, don't do anything immoral, but you know, Chatter up, maybe be a little flirtatious. The rest is history. Best of luck 
Do not, do, you don't need to be overly scrupulous here, my friend. The girl is not married. You're in high school. You're, she's talking to boys. Feel free to uh, woo the girl. From Megan, dear Michael, I'm a woman in my early 20s. I've been venturing this barren landscape we call the dating world. I know that you should be yourself when dating and look for a good man, but I'm curious if there are any major turnoffs that guys, um, to guys that are easily avoidable early on while going on dates with someone would love any advice you may have. Feminism is the one thing I will say. Feminism is a major turnoff. If you're listening to this show, something tells me that you have not been infected by that particular disease, so I wouldn't worry too much. If, if you're worried about you know, little behaviors that you do or kind of quirks of your personality, don't, don't, you don't worry about that too much. One, because women pretending to be someone that they're not is unattractive all the time, uh, at least if you're looking for a long-term sort of relationship, uh, love affair, marriage, that sort of thing. Uh, but, but also, you'll be in a situation where you'll go on a date with a guy and you're going to be yourself and the guy's just not going to like you. And maybe you're not going to like him and you're just not going to click. There are girls that are objectively gorgeous that I would not be able to date for more than two seconds because I would put a drill in my head. It would just be, the personalities just wouldn't clash. It w- would clash. We're, we're just not made for each other. You know, sweet little Elise and I, you know, go together like uh, salt and pepper. You know, I don't know. We go, we go together uh, very well. Not only because, you know, she, she's the whole package, right? She's a hot, foxy lady, but also because of her personality. Now, some guys might not like her personalities because she's very funny. She's very, very uh, shrewd. She's very, she's got a very uh, conservative perspective about things. And so that might be a turnoff to people who might want more of a bobblehead or something like that. I understand people are attracted to different things, but I, I wouldn't try to pretend to be someone that you're not. I don't, I don't think that's going to work for the guys that wouldn't like the real you. And I don't think that it would work for the guys that would like the real you either. From Sam. Hi, Michael. As I've gotten older, I realized I struggle with anxiety. I don't believe in taking pills unless it's utterly necessary. And I'm beginning, I'm, I am looking into going to therapy, but want to see if you have any advice on how to deal with generalized anxiety and overthinking all the time. Thanks and love the show. I agree with you. I think pills should be a last resort. Uh, I think therapy can be a very good thing if you get a good therapist. You know, if you get a therapist who sees the world in the wrong way, who, who doesn't recognize certain basic truths about the world and the human person, then that therapist probably isn't going to be very good. Uh, but a good therapist can be great. I mean, Drew Clavin says that his life was saved by a good therapist. When you get a therapist too, also make sure there's an end date. Some people go to their therapist for years and years and decades and decades, and they never stops and they never get cured. Make sure you, there's an end here, you know, and then that's it. Uh, I do think also, not denying there are certain physical psychological problems. I'm not denying that there are other psychological problems that are more easily treated with therapy. But a lot of what we would call psychological problems, like anxiety, can also be philosophical and ultimately can be theological. If you are laboring under a really confused philosophy and theology, I could understand why that would induce a great deal of anxiety. If you are really struggling with who you are, what your identity is, whether you're going to just turn to worm food when you die, what the purpose of life is. I mean, that can lead to a great deal of anxiety. I'm not saying that accounts for all or even a majority of cases of clinical anxiety, but I think it accounts for some of it. And so I I would also recommend you try to treat the philosophical and 
theological aspects too. I don't think you're going to cure yourself. Just as you've got to take care of your body, you do also have to take care of your soul and your mind. And uh, you're, you're not going to be able to treat your whole person because you're not just a body. You're not just a meat bag. So you're not going to be able to treat your whole person if you ignore your mind and your soul. So I would, I would recommend a little philosophical and theological inquiry as well, uh, as, as well as finding a good therapist. I think that could be a good idea. From Jesse, hi, Michael. My whole life, I thought it was better to be more on the modest side and not simply flirt to get everything you want. I'm seeing a trend here today. Sure, use your personality to accomplish things, but not softcore pimping themselves out like girls who wear low-cut shirts to get more views on their YouTube channel. Have I just not been using my assets as a woman as much as I should have, or is it better to be a bit more demure? Sincerely, maybe I should have flirted my way to the top. There's a difference between flirting and, you know, stripping. So I, you think about the Victorian era, okay? the Victorian era on the surface, uh, very buttoned up, but brimming with sexuality, you know, and that's what you see jokes about the Victorian era. A woman would show her ankle, you know, and people would, you know, men would start sweating. They'd be so turned on. Why is that? That really did sort of happen. It's because seduction and attraction and flirtation is not just about our naked bodies. You'll, no, you'll notice most people don't look great naked, okay? But this is why people wear lingerie. The point of lingerie is not what it shows, but what it covers up. And this is true. I'm not suggesting you wear lingerie in the workplace. I'm saying quite the opposite, actually. You can be quite flirtatious in what you withhold. You know, a uh, well-placed smile <laughs> or remark uh, or glance even can be far more attractive than just some hussy parading all of her jiggly bits, you know, out, out for everyone to see. From Chris, Michael, propaganda has been huge, a huge theme this week, not only on your show, but also in the media more broadly. Reminds me of the story of Nathan Hale's alleged last words. I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. Some say that Washington used this as propaganda and that the quote was plagiarized from Joseph Addison's play Cato. How beautiful is death when earned by value? Who would not be that youth? What a pity it is that we can die but once to serve our country. Isn't propaganda just the mythology of the victors? Sure. And at the moment, it's the mythology of both the victors and the losers. I mean, there's plenty of mythology surrounding the losers in wars. You think in in the case of the Civil War in the American South, there's a mythology that's grown up around that too, just like there is among the victors. Uh, You're right about Nathan Hale. He almost certainly never said that phrase. I think there's basically zero evidence he ever said it. Uh, I think his last comment on the scaffold was something to the effect of it's good for officers to do what their commander-in-chief tells them to do. Uh, So I, uh, yeah, that that is part of the mythology of war. I, I don't, I don't, uh, begrudge the, the Ukrainians or the Russians for that matter, their own propaganda. That's what happens. But I strongly recommend that we who are trying to understand the conflict and who may well be, be pulled unwittingly into this conflict, we need to be able to discern between propaganda and reality. And that's very, very difficult when virtually all of the media are, are propagandists themselves. I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. Have a good weekend. I'll see you on Monday. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Andrew Clavin Show, and The Matt Walsh Show. The Michael Knowles Show is produced by Ben Davies. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. 
Supervising Producer, Mathis Glover. Production Manager, Pavel Vidovsky. Editor and Associate Producer, Danny D'Amico. Associate Producer, Justine Turley. Audio Mixer, Mike Coromina. And Hair and Makeup by Cherokee Hart. Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. Hey everybody, this is Andrew Claven, host of The Andrew Claven Show. You know, some people are depressed because the republic is collapsing, the end of days is approaching, and the moon's turned to blood. But on The Andrew Claven Show, that's where the fun just gets started. So come on over to The Andrew Claven Show and laugh your way through the fall of the republic with me, Andrew Claven. <laughs> 